what we're going to do right now is we're going to get into God's Word. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, uh, I'm going to tell you guys very quickly. Uh, basically, several weeks ago, several months ago, I should say, probably around uh, 12, 13 weeks ago, we started a brand new series uh, on Sundays going through the book of Galatians. And the whole idea of this book is to really try to get into it, let God's Word speak to us. That's one of the things that we do here as a church. We uh, really love God's Word. We love God's Word mainly because God's Word is like a, a lamp that points us to Jesus. And at the end of the day, we really love Jesus. We want to be about Jesus, and God's Word points us to Jesus. So we, we love God's Word because it points us to Jesus. And so uh, one of the things that we started several weeks ago looking at the book of Galatians, we realized that Paul is the author of this book, Paul the Apostle. He wrote the book basically to a group of believers living in an area called Galatia. Uh, it's Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And what he did is he wrote this book to this group of people uh, with the specific purpose of basically communicating to them and conveying to them God's grace, what God has done for them or what God has done on their behalf uh, because he loves them, because God cares for them. Uh, Paul was concerned about this group of people because what had happened was they started out understanding God's grace. They started out responding to God's grace. But at some point in some time, they basically moved themselves into an area of works where they started doing things, feeling like, believing that the way that God is going to now accept them or make them more mature or better is by them working hard for God. Let me give an example of this is that Paul really wants to remind them of grace. And the reason why he does this is because they, just like us, are prone to forgetting what God has done. They, like us, are prone to turn something very good, that's a gift, into some sort of work or activity. Let me give you a prime example of this. Most Christians would recognize and acknowledge that salvation comes by grace, and most Christians would acknowledge and recognize that we will go to heaven one day because of grace. But somewhere in between of being saved by grace and going to heaven by grace is sort of this in-between period that we call now. And we are basically perfected by our works. So we're saved by grace. We'll, be saved, we'll go to heaven by grace. But now we've got to be perfected by works. We make ourselves perfect by what we do. And oftentimes what happens is Christians live like this. And they think that the way that we will be made right with God and continue to keep our life sustained by God or sustained in relationship with God is what we do. How much are we witnessing, telling people about Jesus? How often do we read our Bible? How good are our morning devotions? How many prayer meetings are we attending? Uh, and the list can go on and on. How, what, how many things that we're doing that are righteous? How many things that we're, doing that we're, that we're not doing that are unrighteous? And we look at those things and we basically be, use them as sort of benchmarks to determine how spiritual we are, how righteous we are, how close to God we are. And the effects of that basically have two main effects. The one effect is either you do those things and you become very self-righteous. You can easily identify self-righteous people. They're the ones that don't want to open up to anybody. They're the ones that hang out. They have their own little Bible studies in their house. They don't open up to other people. They avoid other churches, other gatherings. They tell others to avoid other churches, other gatherings, because in their mind, the mentality goes something like this. Nobody does it right. We do it right. They don't. 
So be very leery of them. Watch out for them because we're doing it right. We're witnessing. We're sharing the gospel. We're preaching the gospel right. We're teaching it correctly. They're not. So avoid them. Stay away from them. So you're left with either this uh, very arrogant uh, exclusivity or you have the flip side of that whereas you realize you're not doing it very good. You haven't been very good at even keeping your resolution. Some of you, this is you. All right, you made resolutions two days ago. You're like, I'm going to read the Bible through in a whole year. Right, you already failed. You didn't even read your Bible today. All right, that's how bad you are. It's only the second. You're like, don't. And the reality is you feel really bad already. You're like, I already blew it. Right, that's my point. So either A, you will feel really arrogant and self-righteous and exclusive and pull yourself away from other groups of, of bodies of believers, or you'll feel really bad, you'll feel horrible, you'll feel far from God, you feel like you, you blew it. And one of the reasons why this is the case is because you have somehow subtly come to believe that even though you're saved by grace, even though you'll go to heaven by grace, somewhere in between you feel the need to perfect your life by works, by working hard for God. And that's the mentality. What Paul is doing in terms of this letter is he's writing to this group of believers saying, you don't get it. You're walking away from what God has done for you. What God has not only done for you in the past, but what he will one day do for you in the future, but also what he's done for you in the present. What he's doing for you now. How well he's taking, for, taking care of you now. And the word that we would basically use to describe all of God's interactivity in our lives. Simple. It's grace. What that just simply means, it's a gift. God gives to us Grace upon grace, gift upon gift, because he's a good God. So here's the point. I want to look at just very quickly. By the way, all this is introduction. I haven't even started my message yet. So you're welcome. This is free. So at the end of the day, I want to just look at a couple different evidences of grace or examples of grace, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go, and then I'm going to read the passage that we're looking at here tonight in the book of uh, Galatians, and I'm going to pray. Then we will actually get into the sermon. You're like, sweet. So that's what we're going to do. The first thing I want you to notice in terms of grace is the most simplest way, most common type of way of identifying grace. Theologians call it just simply this, common grace. And what we mean by this is that this is grace that's universal. God pours out grace and kindness upon everybody, every human being, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of religion. Did you know that? You know that God even pours out grace on Muslims? terrorists you know that that's what the bible teaches this is called common grace common grace it's identified basically in the bible for example the psalmist would say he causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust we call that common grace common grace i'll never forget the time one time when i was in israel we got on the bus in the morning and it was raining. It's horrible. We are all bombed. All of us were like, ah, this is horrible. It's going to be muddy. None of us were happy. The tour guy, he's a Jewish guy, right? He basically stops, he didn't stop the bus, but he stops us. He rebukes us, right? Here's what he says He goes, look, I can tell all of you guys are Gentiles. You're non Jews. We're like, what? Is this an insult? Should we be, you know? And he's just like, look, the bottom line is this Jews never complain about the rain. Jews rejoice because the rain is a blessing from God. I was like, ah, never thought about that before. All right, it's all about perspective. I'm like, I never thought about that. Here we are, a bunch of Americans, 
Non-Jewish people, we're all complaining, we're all frustrated. We're like, we're going to get muddy, this is not good. We can't wear shorts, right, because it's cold out. And he's just like, look, guys, this is a blessing from God. God provides rain because he's a good God. And the point that I would want to make with regard to this is we live under sort of the system of God's common grace that he pours out abundance Upon all of us, all right? This is the reason why, if you ever wondered, why even non-Christians can take incredible delight in the smile of a baby. Or even find great, intense love. I mean, good love. Not just sexual love or eros love. But I mean like depth of emotional, affectionate love in humanity, in life. Or why somebody can find, just sort of get lost in the beauty of a sunset or a sunrise, or enjoy the absolutely unfathomable you know, beauty of, say, like Yosemite. Because all of these are evidences of common grace. All of us, all of us, regardless of who you are, race, religion, whatever, God showers grace upon grace. The second type of grace Paul talks about is what we would call regenerating grace. He actually starts writing about this type of grace in the book of Galatians. And it's this idea that it gives the spirit to us, and the spirit basically illuminates our hearts and our minds, turns our eyes on to see and understand Jesus. And one of the examples of this would be is that if you're here tonight, maybe at one point in your life you can remember you weren't a Christian. You didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. You didn't love Jesus. You didn't want to pray. Uh, you didn't want to read your Bible. You didn't want to hang out with Christians. Maybe you were the type of person that was like me that really didn't want to have anything to do with Christians at all because you thought they were really funky and weird. And then at some point or time in your life, God changed all that where now you actually wanted to go to church. You wanted to hang out with Christians. You wanted to pray. You wanted to read your Bible. That was me. God did something radical in my life. And that type of idea or terminology, we would describe that as uh, regenerating grace. God regenerates our hearts, turns our hearts on. Whereas once they were dead, now we see, now we understand. Once we didn't desire God, now we actually desire God. That's regenerating grace. That's a gift from God. The third type of grace Paul talks about, again, we spent a lot of time on this throughout the book of Galatians, is what we would call justifying grace. What this basically means or portrays is all humanity, because we sort of live under this fountain of God's constant flow of common grace, all of us, all humanity, all of us have been given various giftings from God. And God even fine-tunes that. This is why some people are really good at music. Some people are really good at sort of weaving together words and making stories and making rhyme. Some are really good at art and can draw things and whatnot. Others are really analytical and they're really smart with numbers. And, you know, you get this wide range of humanity of people that God in a very common way has just given great gifts and kindness and goodness all over all humanity. But the reality is this, is that God showers grace upon us even though we are just not simply undeserving, but we're ill-deserving. So a big distinction would be this. Undeserving would be if I were to walk up to you and be like, I've never met you before. There's a lot of people here I don't know. But if I were to walk up to you and say, look, I don't know you, but here's 20 bucks. Go out and buy some food. Enjoy it. Go get a cup of coffee or pick up a coffee or whatever. Enjoy it. You're like, what did I do? And I'm like, nothing. I just wanted to bless you. Just wanted to give you something. I had an extra 20 bucks. I wanted to give it to you. And you're like, I'm undeserving. I didn't do anything for this. Exactly. Undeserving. 
That's not who we are. We're ill-deserving. Here's what I mean. If I were to give you 20 bucks and you were to use that 20 bucks to go buy a knife and stab me, that's ill-deserved grace. You understand? You did not just simply not deserve it. You actually used the gift that I gave you to harm me. Do you understand that? That's us. That's us. That's the description of who we are in humanity. We are ill-deserving of God's kindness, of God's goodness, of God's generosity. Yet he keeps giving, keeps giving. So the way the Bible portrays this whole big picture of all of us is that rather than, being given, rather than using the gifts that God has given to us to glorify him, to love him, to honor him, using our blessings and our privileges in our lives as a means to bring honor and reflect glory back to God, we actually remove the mirror and basically want to take the spotlight. We are basically, at the end of the day, we're glory thieves. You understand that? We steal the glory of God. Rather than using the gifts and the kindness and the affection of God just in a very general sense to bring glory back to Him, we take it to bring glory to us to exalt ourselves, to take honor that actually belongs to God. And the Bible basically speaks of us in this terms as being at enmity with God. You understand that? All of us are at enmity with God. But in an absolutely amazing act of kindness and grace, all on God's behalf, is Galatians chapter 3 puts it this way, that God sent his son Jesus into this world as a servant to basically suffer and die so that on the cross, God treats Jesus as if he were the worst, most evil sinner in all the world, just like you and I. The Bible says he died for us in our place. But the great miracle is that not only does God, in this amazing exchange, treat Jesus as if he were the sinner and crush him, but as a result of this, treats us as if we're his son and accepts us. This great exchange is absolutely phenomenal. Paul calls it justified. We are justified by grace. It's a gift of God. God loves us. God poured out his wrath that we deserved on his son. And in turn, in exchange, pours out his affection on us. To which God now looks at us and says, justified. You're justified. He looks at us and he declares us righteous. As if we never sinned. As if we've never done anything wrong. God looks at our record and says, it's all been paid. It's all been paid. It's finished. That's the big topic of what's called justification. It's grace that's demonstrated through God justifying us, making us right with God. So grace and common grace, we see grace in regenerating grace, we see God's gift and grace through justifying grace, and the final way in which Paul is going to sort of emphasize this unbelievable, it actually gets better. And Paul is going to now point out one final level of grace that's absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's absolutely great news. It's not just good news. It's unbelievable news. In fact, basically you look at it this way. If all that God did for us 
was declare us just. If that's all that God did for us, that'd be amazing. But that's not all he does for us. That action of justifying grace actually paves the way for the next unbelievable evidence of grace that we would just simply describe as adopting grace. It's not just enough to where God says, I forgive you, I wash you, I declare you just, I wash away your sin, remove your defilement as far as the east is from the west. God says, I will also bring you into my family. I will bring you into the circle of fellowship and love that has always existed throughout all time amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is absolutely amazing. Prepare to have your mind absolutely blown tonight because this, it's incredible. I want to read the passage. I'm going to pray. We're going to get to work. That was all introduction. Here's what it says. I mean, as Paul writes these people, that an heir, as long as he is a child, he's no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is, uh, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In this unbelievable passage, what we see real quick before I pray, is we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in Trinitarian form, working together, all to bring about the unfathomable. That God would actually adopt ill-deserved people like you and I and call them sons and daughters. That God would actually place his name upon us. Unbelievable. Jesus, we thank you for tonight. We ask you, God, that you would open our eyes. Pray, God, that as we embark on this and begin to look at this and understand this, God, I ask you, Lord, that you would remove any misconceptions we have had about you that you would help us to be quick to repent from those things, to turn away from those things, to leave those things behind. God, that we would press forward, press in, press on into you, to understand you, to understand your heart. God, it's your desire that as we understand this, as we see this, as we get this, as we catch this, that our hearts would expand with great love. God, as our hearts expand with great love for you, uh, that we would just, in turn, let go of those things that are filthy and dirty the Bible describes as sinful in exchange for that which is holy and just and righteous and good and pure, just like you. God, we thank you that we don't have to beg you to be kind. You are kind. We thank you that we don't have to beg you to show grace. You've already shown grace. God, I pray tonight that you would help us to understand the grace that's already been placed upon us in our account because of Jesus. So we give this evening, we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing I want to basically do is I want to, first of all, I want to tell you, we're going to be doing this for the next two weeks, all right? We're going to spend at least two weeks looking at the subject of adoption. It's an enormous topic. I didn't want to run through it. There's a lot of different ways to kind of try to understand this. So this has been a big 
big subject for me that I've been spending a lot of hours uh, praying over, thinking about, meditating on, honestly, just weeping over, just absolutely floored by it. Uh, one of the best books I read on this or subjects on this, I'll just throw it out to you, is uh, by a guy named J.I. Packer. He wrote this chapter in this book called Knowing God. It's just all adoption. That chapter absolutely ruined me. It throttled me. I couldn't read through it just straight. I kept putting it down, weeping. Come back later, pick it back up, read for about five, ten minutes, put it down, weep. And it's just, it's just unbelievable what God has done for us. So what I want to do is I want to take at least the next two weeks, really understand what God has done for us by this huge, enormous theological concept we just simply call adoption. All right, it's a very simple concept, but it's unbelievably enormous in terms of the impact upon our lives. Let me give you one quick, simple example. You can almost look at it this way. The idea of adoption and uh, you know, justification is that it creates or reestablishes this relationship with us and God on this vertical level. But because God now is our Father, that also would imply the fact that God has a huge family. That means that if we are in this relationship with God, this is not just about me and having a personal relationship with God, but it's also about me being basically inducted into a family in which there's lots of sons and daughters, lots of children, some which have different backgrounds, some which have different um, you know, races, some which have different ways of doing things, some which I sometimes don't even get along with doing things with them. And the point of the matter is, is that as this works its way out in our lives, as we begin to realize that by being in this family of God, as God is our Father, it begins to have horizontal effects upon our lives the way that we deal with other people. So with that being said, that's just one of the sort of the highlights, the examples of the things that we'll be taking a look at over the next couple of weeks. And I want to do this by basically asking a handful of questions. Here's the first question I want to ask tonight is really what does it mean in terms of our need of needing adopting grace? What does this imply about us? Because if the Bible is basically clear, it says that we need to be adopted. We need this work of God, or this is one of the primary reasons by which Jesus came into this world, was to bring about adoptions as sons. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that even greater than justification, even bigger than justification, is the doctrine of adoption. Now, don't in any way get this misunderstanding or misapply the fact that justification is somehow lesser than. It's not. It's the foundation upon which adoption is built. The reason why we've been adopted into the family is because we've been justified. But even greater than just simply having our sins forgiven is God continuing to pile grace upon grace by bringing us into his family, by taking ill-deserved sinners like you and I and calling them sons and daughters. So it's really, at the end of the day, the greatest doctrine, I would almost even say, of the entire Bible. It's the greatest impulse, passion, longing, desire, heartbeat of God is to gather for himself a family, people, people like you and I, people that are sinners like you and I, people that are ill-deserved like you and I, and forgive them through what Jesus had done for us on the cross, but then now to bring us into this relationship with himself whereby he's now our dad. He's our father, is the way Paul would describe it. He's our Abba. So the first question is this, first slide that we'll take a look at, is really what does our need for adopting grace imply? Basically three things. The first of which it implies that God 
in a very natural sense, is not our Father. This is really important. In today's world, spirituality is all over the place. In today's culture, everything's about being spiritual. Having some form of spirituality is what's popular today. And I don't mean it in any way to kind of put her down, but the greatest, most profound spiritual cult leader in, I would even say perhaps America, but even broader than perhaps even the world, Oprah, is very spiritual. All right, she's done a lot of great things. I don't in any way knock her. I think a lot of ways she's sort of on a journey trying to figure things out herself, but she's very spiritual. She's all about conveying a message. If you listen to what she says, her message is that really all of us are God's sons and daughters. That all of us are somehow linked to God by way of spirituality. And the problem is, I think she would portray, is in her mind, is that there's sort of this conflict that basically says, you're, you, you know, there's, the, the fundamental Christians are messing things up, but the point of the matter is, is that the Bible is very clear. We are not all sons and daughters of God. In one sense, that God created us, designed us, made us, and we have some level of accountability to him. That's the extent by which God is our Father on a universal level. Just in the same way that an architect is by no means in love with and adopted to his project. It's just the project. He worked hard to develop it, worked hard to sell it, worked hard to make it. There's no relationship whatsoever outside of that that he has to it. But in a very real way, the fact of the matter is, is that all of us, even though we were made by God, we walked away from God. And therefore, because of that, we are not basically having, we don't have God as our Father. Let me give you a couple examples. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So even John declares the way that we became children of God was not by becoming Jewish, was not by being circumcised, not by being religious, not by basically reciting a creed, not by joining a church, but by believing in the name of Jesus. That's how we became children of God. So the implication is that up until that point, we weren't children of God. Something profoundly happened once we trusted in the name of Jesus that changed our standing, our position before God. Next one, John chapter 8, verse 44 says this, You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do his desires, what your father desires. Jesus, we're going to look at that verse fuller, uh, more fully in the next slide, but right now just listen to this. What Jesus is trying to convey is he speaks to these religious leaders, which really all of us, to some degree, reply to as well. Prior to coming to Christ, all of us would live according to the desires of our Father. I mean, you see this very vividly oftentimes in little kids. Little kids sort of have this streak by the time they get, you know, like a year old, you know, 18 months. They start kind of doing things that can sometimes be a little bit cruel. It can be harmful, be devastating in terms of a setting or a relationship. Now, I don't think there's always an intention or a motivation behind it because there's still some sense of, you know, purity perhaps or maybe uh, naivety that's still in their heart. But the point of the matter is, is that you begin to see there's sort of the streak. Kids start living out according to the desires of their heart and they basically start proving the fact that at the very end of the day, our hearts are evil. Our hearts take the natural bent of the devil himself. That the devil himself, even though uh, he's, he's evil and wicked, we start living out according to the desires of the devil, which is murderous, stealing, thieving, not being content with what we have. 
And that's the point. So first and foremost, we realize that God's not our father. And so we need to have something fundamentally change in our relationship between us and God. And that's what God wanted to do. He wanted to bring us into a relationship whereby now he's our father. The second thing that we notice is not only is that God is not our father in a universal sense. The second thing is that we basically see that we are all slaves under the tyranny of the devil. This is very important. All of us are slaves. You might look at yourself and think, I'm not a slave. Even if you're here and you were maybe a Christian or you're not a Christian, and you look at your life and be like, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a slave. I'm a slave to nobody. There's a lot of people that sort of live under that illusion. They think, I'm a slave to nobody. I live according to my own desires, own whims. Nobody's fully free. Even those of you that sort of think you're free, you still live under the slavery of the desires of trying to please your friends. Do you understand that? You still have some sort, you have a reputation to protect. So you're, you're a slave to your reputation. You're a slave to something. All of us, at the end of the day, are a slave to something. That's Jesus' whole point. Paul would say this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. It's a verse that we read, but he also says it a little bit later, a couple of verses that we didn't read, we'll read in a few weeks. He says this, in the same way, we also, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Goes on down to verse 8, says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved by, to those things which were by nature not God's. Paul's whole point is that all of us have been enslaved. All of us, whether you knew it or not, whether you were working from that fundamental foundational point or not, all of us have been slaves. Maybe a slave to someone's opinion, maybe a slave to our reputation which we're trying to protect, maybe a slave to drugs, maybe a slave to sex, maybe a slave to having to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're a slave. You're some sort of a slave. Something somewhere is a master over you. That's the fundamental point. But the point of the Bible is that at the end of the day, the master that we have over our life, if it's not God, it's working for our destruction. This is exactly why Jesus says this in John chapter 8, verse 44. The devil who we are all at the end of the day a slave to. The devil, he's a murderer from the very beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth, but there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. The point that I would make is this, is that in this world, unless you're a Christian, unless you've come to know Jesus and been liberated by God's great, unbelievable love, you're still a slave. You're a slave ultimately to Satan. You are in a, an abusive relationship. Imagine a relationship at the end of the day whereby this is not a father. He's really not a dad. I mean, Satan is not a father in the same sense as God is a father. Satan didn't create you. He didn't make you. He's not working for your best interest. Satan is basically somebody who's working to destroy you. I mean, think about it. Have you ever played a game with somebody where they know they're not going to win and something fundamentally changes in their mind at some point in the game where they begin to think fundamentally, my goal is not to win. My goal is to sabotage you so you don't win. Have you ever met that person? That's Satan. His goal is not to win. He knows he's not going to win. But at the end of the day, his fundamental level by which he's working forth is to say, I will sabotage everybody so they will not win. That's his goal. And so what he does is he hangs out, 
carrots in front of our eyes. He hands out temptations in front of us to say to bite this, to take this, to engage with this, to love this, to serve this. And he offers promises with those things. And he's constantly offering all sorts of hopes and expectations that will try to hook us. And we believe it. But every moment we believe the lies of the devil means that we distrust, disbelieve God. This is what leads us into slavery. Started watching Inception. Anybody watch that? Started watching that. I can't wait to go and finish up. But there's this point where he talks about in the dream state, there's these people that are all into the dream state. And then he goes on to say, look, these people, you know, he asks, do they come back every day, you know, to take this drug, to get in this dream state? He's all, no. They come back every waking time because for them, the dream has become the reality. That's powerful. For them, the dream has become their reality. They have been willing to exchange life in exchange for this dream. That's exactly what the devil is seeking to do to us. To cause us to live in this fantasy that's not real, that's not tangible, that's not life-giving, that's not life-transformative, that's ultimately to enslave us. So the reality of what the Bible teaches us is that we need adopting grace because not only are we not God's sons and daughters and we need to be brought into this relationship by God's our Father, but we are also slaves under their tyranny. The final thing is this, that we're ultimately lost. We're ultimately lost. At the end of the day, that's it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says this, remember that you were all at one time separated from Christ, alienated, strangers, having no hope and without God in the world. This is it. We were all lost. All of us. None of us had any hope. I was reading an article a couple days ago. I actually put it on my Facebook page. It's amazing. Amazing to read this article. This is a, a couple of people that basically went to, uh, I think, Russia to adopt a couple kids. And when they went to Russia, they were walking down the hallway, uh, being led by the person kind of in charge of the whole place. And as they're walking down the hallway, to them, what would absolutely stop them in their tracks would what tripped them out, they were like tripped out by this, is they were, they were captured by the fact that there was silence. They're like, this isn't right. There's kids everywhere. There's like infants everywhere. But there's dead silence. Why is there dead silence? They heard thumping. They heard maybe tapping. They heard kids rolling around in their crib, bumping things back and forth. But they didn't hear anybody cry. They didn't hear anybody whine. They didn't hear anybody make a sound. And they began to realize that the reason why that was the case was because at the end of the day, these kids learn from a very young age, maybe the first few months of development, that when they cry, and they cry long enough, when nobody comes to rescue them, they just stop crying. They just stop. They just realize no one's coming. There's no one going to hear. There's no one going to be responding. So they just stop crying. That's exactly what Paul says. We were without God, without hope in this world. It's us. It's all of us. That's who we are before we came to Christ. All of us were without God as a father. All of us were basically under the tyranny of an abusive father or caretaker, the devil. All of us were just simply put and described lost. And if you continue in that state throughout your whole life, and the moment you die, you will go on to keep living. Because the reality is, is that we are not just simply bodies with a soul. We are souls that have a body. The distinction is this. 
The end of your existence, your life, your breath in this earth is not the end of who you are. You will continue to live. And if you continue to live without having an exchange of grace, moving from common grace to regenerating grace to justifying grace to adopting grace, the next life will be a life in which there's no common grace. You say that sounds like a hell. That's exactly what the Bible describes it as. No love, no comfort, no peace, no sense of justice. It's a hell. It's a hell. This is what Jesus came to rescue you from. Absolutely amazing. It goes on. The next thing I want you to notice is this, kind of the next question, is what was Jesus' role in adopting grace? Like, what did Jesus do? It's really important. Because obviously Jesus was on a mission. Paul emphasizes that he came into the world. Take a look again at chapter 4. He says around verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Paul's point is that Jesus plays this intricate role in this adopting process. So what did Jesus do? What was he working towards? And I think this is important to understand kind of Jesus' part and Jesus' role. Take a look at a handful of verses that John gives his commentary to us on. It's absolutely amazing. Here's what John says. John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Yet Jesus, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. This is amazing. He's basically pointing out the fact that here's God. In a lot of ways, he's very ambiguous. A lot of people don't know who he is. There's a lot of people, like what Paul would say later on in the book of Acts, they're groping around in the dark. They can't see. They're feeling the edges of God or what they expect or think is God, and they're trying to figure God out through philosophical means, through the means of intellect, through the means of art, through the means of music, through the means of whatever types of means that they have at their disposal. But his whole point is that they're just basically groping around in the dark. And what John is trying to describe is that nobody really knows who God is. No one has ever seen God at any time. No one really fully comprehends or understands or can fathom who God is except one, Jesus. Jesus understands. He knows who God is. I just watched Elf a couple days ago, one of my all-time favorite movies. I love the part when Elf is like hanging out. He's working in gimbals. And all of a sudden he hears, Santa's coming tomorrow. He's like, Santa! Yeah! And he's freaking out. And the next day he comes out. He's like, I know him. And he walks up to him. He's like, Santa, Santa. He's like, not Santa. He walks up to him and he realizes, he's like, you sit on the throne of lies. You're not, you're not Santa. You don't, you're not the guy. And why does he know? Because he was at the right hand. He knows Santa. He was there, right? In the same way, Jesus knows who God is. He knows that there are imposters all over the place veiling themselves as God. And Jesus' whole point, no one knows who God is. Every other God is an imposter. Ruled, run, dictated, like a puppet by the hand of the devil. To deceive, to destroy. John goes on to say, in John chapter 6, verse 46, this is Jesus himself speaking. He says, no one has seen the Father except who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You know what Jesus is saying? Nobody knows who God is. I'm the only one that knows who God is. This is absolutely amazing, this claim that Jesus makes. 
He's basically not just simply saying, look, what you need are teachings that can help you become virtuous. He's not saying you need my script to somehow live this out so you can live a better life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, all of this is about who the Father is. And the bottom line is that nobody knows who the Father is except the Son. I know who the Father is. I came from his right hand. I know him. I have relationship with him. I'm in intimacy and fellowship with the Father. And I've come from the Father to you to tell you about the Father, to tell you about him. And this is exactly why Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to God but through me. I am explicitly, exclusively the means, the way by which to get to God. So at the end of the day, what we really need is we need a path. We need a path cleared away whereby we can see who God is and how to get to God. And at the end of the day, it's not us ascending to God by our works, by our actions, by our religiousness, by the things that we do, but it's God descending to us. Absolutely amazing God descending to us. God coming down to us onto our level, into our world, into our suffering, into our pain. Saying, I know what you're going through. I know the suffering you feel. I know the pain of betrayal. I know what it's like to feel pain. But I want to show you the way to the Father. He'll take care of you. This is one of the reasons why the impersonal, the impersonal religious systems of the world today are all deficient. Okay, let, let me give you an example. This is why like, Confucianism is really about a teacher communicating to us ancient wisdom with the main distinct purpose, the main thrust and goal of that is to somehow create an avenue, a pathway whereby we can, through the teachings of Confucius, to become virtuous. Or, for example, Confucius, or, or the, uh, Confucianism, the idea of basically realizing, or Buddhism, for example, where you have the way or the path to end suffering, the way that you try to deal with the suffering and the hardship and the pain in this world is to learn the way of the enlightened one or the Buddha, to understand what he has said about suffering so that when you can learn and understand the teachings of the Buddha, then you can somehow find a path to end suffering. Or Islam, the main goal of Islam is to bring about this awareness of who God is or Allah so that then you can be submissive to him. That's exactly what Islam means. It means submission, submission to God. The main thrust is submission. Or the concepts or the very impersonal relationship of impersonal gods of pantheism in which God is everything. Everything you see, God is there. The goal is to tap into that which is out there. Or panentheism, the idea that God is in everything. He's intermingled in everything. And all of these sort of impersonal forces, the goal of most of these things is to either get you connected with a power or a force or an ethic or a teaching or an ideology that somehow will make you better, that will improve your standard of life, improve your dealing with suffering. This is absolutely different than Christianity. At the end of the day, when you see a kid who's like a junior high or 12-year-old kid that's just hopped up on Red Bull and Red Vines, what that kid does not need is more power, more energy, right? More substance. What he needs is a good dad to love him. 
What Christianity offers is not a power, not teachings, not a force per se. At the end of the day, what Christianity offers is a dad, is a father to our fatherless hearts, to our brokenness, to our hardships, to our difficulties, to our constant needs to be taken care of. That's what we need. And unbelievably, what God offers through Jesus is a relationship with him as a father. This is why I absolutely despise. It's too weak of a word to be honest with you. Religion. Religion that basically, did I just die here? Am I still on? <laughs> Religion that basically identifies or describes or portrays God as this means whereby we've got to work to somehow obtain relationship with him. Religion is not about us somehow trying to find a way to get to God. Christianity is God carving out the way to get to us because we're the ones that are lost. We're the ones that are enslaved by the devil. We're the ones that are orphans. We're the ones that are hurting. And God, in an absolutely miraculous move of great grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, condescends to our level. Regenerates our hearts. Justifies us. Declares us righteous. And then adopts us as his sons and daughters. Bringing us into this place whereby we have this relationship now where we can say, Daddy. That's what Abba means. You know that Abba is basically the most remedial form of just simple babble that comes out of the mouth of a child. That's all it is. Just Abba. That's all it is. Baba. Abba. Whatever. Like you see these little kids. I remember being in Israel again, seeing these little kids. These little babies, like, you know, barely even a year old, just being held by mom. And they're just like, Abba. Abba. It's just like this unbelievable, that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, here's what God has done for you. He's brought about the relationship whereby you can now actually call God the very same name which a child born to his natural parent learns to say as the first forms Formation of words coming off of his lips. That's how intimate God wants to be with us. This is why this is absolutely amazing. The final thing that I want to kind of clamp down on is really asking the question, how does God give us this adopting grace? How does he do this? What I'm basically asking here is by what means, by what level of his heart does he do this? The reason why I ask this important question is because oftentimes a lot of us think of Christianity or we think of God in sort of this, he's a little bit standoffish, He's maybe a dad, you know, he's, just, he's a dad, he's got a lot on his plate, he's pretty busy, all right? He's, I mean, he's ruling the universe, taking care of quasars, you know, making sure that there's like all sorts of things going on in the universe that we just can't even begin to imagine. Uh, you know, he's, just, he's, he's, he's kind of wound up, he's got a lot on his plate, a lot on his mind, and the bottom line is, is that he certainly doesn't want to be bogged down with, with me, with little old me. I mean, I just, I'm just, I, I need a computer, or I need better grades, or I need some help, I need some advice in terms of a relationship, whatever. Like, I, I, you know, he's out there busy taking care of all sorts of things that are way beyond me. He certainly doesn't care about me. So if he does do something on behalf of me or for me, it's, it's kind of this begrudging mentality. Where it's like, God's like, oh, whatever, I'll do it. Fine, he twisted my arm, I'll do it. I'll do it, because... That's what's in my resume. It says on the job description, God's got to help out people. So I guess you're a human being, and I'm a God. I'll help you out, but I'll help you out begrudgingly. Or we sometimes think of God in this mentality where it's like a one-way relationship. 
You pray a lot. You fast. You read your Bible a lot. You go to church. You work really hard to get God to have some level of affection for you. But at the end of the day, you basically feel it's just like this one-way relationship. You're doing all this work. God does nothing. Maybe that is the description of your relationship with somebody today. Human being, right? You're calling them, texting them, emailing them, trying to figure out some way to hang out with them. They never call you back, never text you back, never email you back. And you're like, I don't get this. I feel like I'm the only one working in this relationship. Maybe that's the way some of you feel about your relationship with God. So the question again, sort of this, how does God give adoptive grace? Luke chapter 12, verse 32 is this unbelievable passage that gives us an unbelievable glimpse into the actual attitude and heart of God. Here's what it says. Jesus speaks and says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. I mean, I could spend an entire sermon on this whole thing. It's amazing. I mean, I get a couple sermons on this. Jesus basically recognizes, at the end of the day, the fundamental problem that you and I have is we oftentimes distrust. Does God really care? Does he really love to do good things for me? Does he really want to work in my favor? Does he really, truly, at the end of the day, passionately, exuberantly, lovingly want to Pile grace upon grace upon grace for me. Now, I can understand him wanting to do that for someone like a Billy Graham, all right, or somebody super righteous, or somebody that's amazing. But me? No. And here's the reality. Jesus basically uses a phrase here. He says, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That little phrase, pleased, is kind of an interesting phrase. It actually appears only around five or six times in the entire New Testament. And basically... Every other time that this particular word is used and described in any other passage, it's used to basically portray or picture God speaking to his son. Give me an example. When Jesus was baptized, Jesus came out of the water, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus, and this voice from heaven comes out and basically says, this is my beloved son. In him, I'm well pleased. There's our phrase. Well pleased. The other time is when Jesus was uh, on this region, what we call the Mount of Transfigur- Transfiguration. So when Jesus basically takes upon himself this glorious body, and again, God speaks. And from heaven, this voice comes, and God thunders, and he says, this is my son, in whom I'm very well pleased. Same phrase. And it's as if Jesus is speaking to his disciples, saying, look, you wonder, you wonder how much does God really, truly want to bless you? How much he really wants to give you the kingdom. You think he wants to give it to you reluctantly. You think he has to be forced and begged and coerced into giving good gifts to you. Here's what he says. The father takes unbelievably great delight to give you the kingdom. I'm a dad. I told you guys this before. Some of you get tired of hearing stories about my daughters, but that's cool. I don't care. I love my daughters. I absolutely love my daughters. This is the greatest joy of my entire life. I love pastoring. I love what I get to do here. It's unbelievable to be part of this church to see what God's doing here. It's unbelievable. But the greatest joy, honestly, in my life, on this physical, horizontal level, are my two daughters. Absolutely my daughters. We spend time with each other. We hang out. My greatest joys that we've done over the past two weeks of vacation, which I'm really bummed school is going back tomorrow because I'm going to miss hanging out with my daughters. The best thing we love to do is just sit down on the couch 
get underneath a warm blanket, snuggle next to each other, and watch a Cosby show. That's our greatest joy. We love sitting around, snuggling, watching Cosby show. We recently got in happy days. It's awesome. We love just hanging out, snuggling, doing these things together. I love hanging out with my daughters. In fact, I'll give you an example. I've had this opportunity to travel the world, to go to so many different places. The last trip that I went to, I went to Costa Rica. I'm in the most unbelievably beautiful paradise, all right? Black sand beaches. The waves are absolutely perfect. The weather's about 85, 87 degrees out. The water's about 85. I'm trunking it. Waves are unbelievable. I'm sitting there on a beach. I'm drinking a coconut out of a coconut. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. But there's one thing. I'm not complete because my daughters love coconuts. And here I am all by myself, and I'm not content because I don't have them with me. I'm in paradise, and I'm not happy because I don't have the two greatest joys in my life. I love my daughters. Anytime my daughters ask something for me, I am so delighted to give my daughters anything. I love my daughters. I love blessing them. I'm absolutely exuberant in my grace and my gifts to them because I love my daughters. The only thing that limits me is what's in my pocketbook. That's it. That's it. But God's not limited. God has no limitations. But God as a father has the same passionate exuberance and love in the same love that God has towards the son Jesus says this is the same love that God has for you you know at the end of the day we don't believe that you don't believe that I don't believe that not fully we really don't we're suspicious of that at the end of the day we, we just we think it's too great it's too unrealistic. We even have a word for it. We say it's unbelievable. But that's just what we need to do, is we need to believe it, because it's true. Jesus doesn't just go around and choose random words and just spew them out. He means what he says. And everything that Jesus is saying is based upon his character. And if he's lying, then he's not God. If he's lying, then really justifying grace is an illusion. If he's lying, then regenerating grace is a myth. If he's lying, common grace is silliness. But if he's right, if he's true, if his character stacks up, if what he says can be taken to the bank, then this is the absolutely most transformative, perhaps, text in the Bible to change you to know how passionately God loves you. Do you believe that? I mean, that affects the way that we live. It affects the way that we approach our dad our Father, it affects the way that we pray. It affects the way that we read our Bibles. Do you understand that people that get this, that understand this, are the freest people? God can't give a blessed kingdom unless he himself is blessed. Do you know that God is the most joyful being in the universe? He overflows with joy in and of himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are constantly in this cycle of love, celebration, joy, sharing. There is no darkness, no secrets in the Trinity, no lies in the Trinity, no deception in the Trinity. Jesus is not hiding something from the Spirit. The Father's not pulling the wool over Jesus' eyes. There's nothing but constant openness and love and fellowship. They're happy. 
They're joyful. One of the most amazing things that Jesus says that God does from that point is he says God welcomes you to be a part of the celebration of joy. To be a part of this cycle, this system of love overflowing from the Trinity. Let me give you an example of this. My wife and I, a lot of times in the kitchen, we'll go and hang out, and I'll walk up to her and I'll just give her a big hug. I'll just sit there and hold her, hug her, just love her, just put my head on her neck and just hug her. And my daughters see this and they're like, I want in. Like, okay, come on in, come on in. My other daughter says, I want in too. She's a high schooler. She comes on in, and we, we form this circle of love. And if I had more kids, the circle would get bigger. I only have two. The point that I would make is this is an unbelievable act of grace upon grace upon grace that God the Father does for us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, an unfathomable love and joy. Realize that you and I have no father. Realize that you and I have been lost, broken, under the slavery and the dominion and the tyranny of the devil because of his sabotage. You and I are lost. We're outside of the circle. You and I, if we continue on that path, we will enter into an eternity lost. That's called hell. But out of an absolutely unbelievable act of love, God sent his son Jesus into our world to become a human being, to add to his divinity humanity, to seek and save the lost, and not just to shower grace by regenerating their heart through the Holy Spirit, but by justifying them, declaring them righteous, by washing away the offense, by removing their glory thievery, by restoring the brokenness that was the, all about their life, but in an unbelievable act of just final grace upon grace upon grace, God the Father says, come into the circle of love. Come. You're my son and daughter. Love you. Remind of a story that when Jesus sent his disciples out, it's amazing. He tells his disciples, I want you to go and preach the gospel, preach the good news. I'm here. Tell them, I'm here. They go out, a handful of them go out, they end up coming back, and while they're out, they basically tell Jesus that when they come back, they're like, This is amazing. We were out preaching the gospel, we told people about Jesus. Uh, you know, we were able to, you know, pray for people, and they got the ability to see, their eyes were healed, their lameness was removed. Um, it said, you know, we even had this situation where some dude came up and he was all demon possessed and out of, you know, out of whack and out of source. And we prayed for him. We, we rebuked the demon in the name of Jesus and the demon left. And they're like, this is amazing. Like, even the demons listen to us. Nobody listens to us. My dog doesn't listen to me. My wife is obstinate. My two-year-old is constantly grumpy and complaining. My cat never listens to me. Nobody listens to me. The demons listen to me. They're like, this is amazing. We can't believe this. And here's what Jesus does. This is amazing. I love this story. Because Jesus basically says, that's awesome. He's like, but you know what? Check this out. I saw Satan kicked out of heaven. You know what Jesus does? He's like, I'm going to one-up you. You're all thinking you're all cool because you cast out demons. But I saw the prince of demons kicked out of heaven. So you're all stoked because you saw a demon leave a guy. I saw Satan kicked out of heaven. I beat you. At the end of the day, here's what Jesus says. You know what really should impress you? That the Father penned your name in his book. That's what should floor you. 
That's what should grip your heart. That's what should absolutely change your life. Not miracles, not signs, not wonders, not miraculous events. Because at the end of the day, they're, they're just intended to point out the fact that the king's here. That's what the miraculous events were intended to do. Not to be put on display by some wacky dude with a funky haircut, showing off. It's not the point. The point of miracles is to point to the fact that the king's here. But you know what the king's here for? He's here to gather a family. You know what's even more amazing than miracles? Is that you are a miracle. That your name is written in God's book. This changes us. To be able to live in a mentality understanding that God loves me. Life changing. I want to finish this up tonight by basically doing something we normally don't do. I'm going to have Chris come on up and these guys come on up and lead us in some worship in a second here. I want to basically pray for some of you guys because the reality is I, I just, I realize this is unfathomable. It's difficult. I had a girl come up to me in between one of the services today and she's like, I just feel like I got to talk to you. I'm like, what's going on? She said, I want to believe this. I go, are, are you a Christian? She goes, no. I go, how come? She goes, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can believe this. Because if what you're telling me is true, like, this changes everything. This is where a lot of you guys are. You just don't believe it. Do you know that Eve in the garden didn't believe that God had her best interest in mind? God says, you have the whole garden to eat. Everything. It's amazing. It's vast. It's broad. It's beautiful. It's good. There's one tree in the garden. Don't eat of it. There in the garden, the serpent, the devil, the saboteur, saboteur, is there talking to her, preaching to her, saying, did God really tell you you couldn't eat of everything? I mean, it seems to me like God's withholding something good from you. You know what she did? She distrusted God, believed the serpent. She thought that by partaking of the fruit, it was going to give her substance. It was going to give her life. She thought that God was actually withholding something from her. And you know, that's the source of all of our sin, is that at the end of the day, we just don't believe that our Heavenly Father has our best interest in mind. You know, Jesus' message on Sermon on the Mount was, seek first God's kingdom. He'll take care of you. If your father in heaven cares for a bird that falls out of a tree, a lowly, worthless bird that no one cares about, it falls out of the tree and no one even bats an eyelash about it. They just step on it. It's no big deal. If God actually cares about a simple bird and he has no relationship of father to birdship to this thing, there's no intimacy going on between father and bird how much more does your heavenly father who created you designed you, knows you, made you, shaped you formed you, gifted you how much more does he love you and care for you guys this is real Jesus' whole character is evidence of the fact that this is trustworthy I'm going to wrap this up tonight with two things speak to two groups of people. One, if you're here, you're not a Christian, and you realize you're lost, you realize you're under the tyranny of something that's out of control. You have no control over it. You don't know how to break it. Because you can't break it.
You can't deliver it yourself. You can't. If you think you can, you will find yourself, maybe that might deliver you from something powerful only to be under the influence of something even greater. You can't. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you want to come home, you want to come back to, into this reality where God says, you need me as your father. Grace upon grace. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. If you're here tonight and you're, you're a Christian, specifically if you're a Christian, but the reality of God being your dad who actually cares for you and loves you and actually takes unbelievably great delight and joy in gifting to you his kingdom. That God actually has the same level of exuberance and joyfulness in his heart for you that he has for his son. here tonight and you just don't believe it. You're having a hard time believing it. Part of you is like, I want to believe that, but I don't know if I can believe it. You're like the children of Israel in the wilderness that are like, God says, I'll provide for you, man, every single day. I'll take care of you every single day. And there was this group of them that said, you know what? We're not really sure if tomorrow God's going to take care of us. So let's, let's, let's store, let's hoard as much manna as we can for the next day, just in case to create a contingency plan, just in case God doesn't take care of us. Bread and stank it bred worms and it stank. They had this contingency plan because they didn't really, they didn't really believe that their father was going to provide for them. And you're here tonight and you're just like, that's me. I, I, I'm having a hard time really believing the fact that the father truly, genuinely cares for me, loves me. I want to have both of you people, those of you that are not a Christian, and those of you that are Christians that are having this hard time believing this. I'm going to have all the lights turned off. Let's just turn them off right now. I just, just I don't even want to, I don't even know if you guys are looking at me right now. Just, just want you to close your eyes right now. Turn off all the lights. It's going to be dark in here. I just, I, just don't, I just don't even want you to be thinking about anybody next to you right now. Thinking about me, thinking about the band, thinking about anything. just want you to, to just now focus your mind, your thoughts upon your father here that's you, you're not a Christian or you are a Christian and you need that assurance and you want to have God as your father I'm going to pray for you guys um, but I want to do this by basically having you respond by standing I don't want to manipulate you, I don't want to create an environment this is not about somehow forcing people to do something that's weird or manipulating, it's not what this is about standing up is not magical create anything strange or weird. It's just you simply saying, that's me. I need to know God. I want to know God as my Father. The idea that Jesus portrays, puts forth in the Bible, is that he says to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The idea of repentance is not just simply giving up looking at porn magazines. Or stop listening to some type of music or doing some type of bad habit. That's not simply what repentance is. At the end of the day, repentance is a change of your mind. It's you stopping the thought processes that you have about God that are deadly, that are not accurate, that are not correct about who God is. It's changing the fundamental premise by which you view God. Repenting from those false views and adopting a new view of who God is. That's what repentance is. If that's you tonight, you want to repent. Whether you're a Christian, you want to repent from sin, turn to God. 
prayers. If you're, not, if you're not a Christian, you want to repent from your sin and turn to God. If you are a Christian and you want to repent from false ideas, I want to have both groups of you guys stand up right now. All I want to do is pray for you. Stand up. It's right where you're at. It's totally between you and God. It's awesome. It's a big step to that. Anybody else? Just stand up. All I want to do is pray for you. Love to have a couple people maybe sitting around. If you guys can just lay hands on these people that you see, just lay hands on them. I'm going to pray. What I want you guys to know is that we're family. We're family. We all have these struggles. We all have these doubts. We all find the reality of who God is as being just unbelievable. Because at the end of the day, nobody's like this in this this world. Nobody acts like this. Nobody shows grace like this without something in return. Nobody just gives and gives and gives without expecting something in return. It's just not how this world works. But God's not of this world. And your Heavenly Father is not like anybody in this world. Your Heavenly Father is perfect. He's got the goods. He's got the abilities. He's limitless in His strength and His might and His power and His grace and His goodness. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here right now that are standing. All of them. God, thank you that right now, tonight, you're moving in their hearts. God, I just ask you that you would fall afresh. Thank you that it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are working collectively, collaboratively, together for our deep, our deep joy in you. It's because of our distrust of this, God, that we turn away from you. It's because we don't believe this that we believe the alternative lies. We believe the parodies. We believe the sketches that hint at spirituality but never really portray the picture of the fatherness of God great, passionate, zealous love and affection for us as your sons and daughters because of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, right now we ask you that you would point our minds to Jesus. That our affection would be given to Jesus. My brothers and sisters, that they would cling to Jesus, see Jesus, love Jesus, appreciate the cross, appreciate the fact that even though our salvation Our adoption is free. It costs Jesus everything. So God, we respond to you right now in worship, in appreciation, in love, in affection. God, thaw our hearts out tonight if they're cold. Give an assurance to my brothers and sisters here that are standing that just need to know this, need to live this, need to be in connection with this reality. Help us now to worship you in spirit and in truth. As right now we're going to worship, we're going to sing, partake of communion. I encourage you. You guys are on the bird. God is here. God is here. The spirit of God is here moving. Purpose of the Spirit of God is to point our eyes to Jesus. When we see Jesus, we respond in affection and love. We're going to worship. 
my encouragement to you is if your heart is not at the place where you would like it to be, sometimes we need to use our bodies and let our bodies take us there and our hearts will follow. Honestly, I mean, just the, the picture of needing to see God as our Father before some of us. That's why we lift our hands and praise to God because God's our daddy. It's amazing when you see little kids. There's no inhibitions in a little kid. Kids don't sort of rationalize and reason in their mind. Should I go to my dad? Should I lift up my hands to my mom? Will they pick me up? Will they care for me? They just do it. We're going to worship. We're going to respond. Partake of communion as you guys feel led and prompted. Sing to God. But let your praise be proportionate to the measure of what God has shown you tonight. Respond to Him in love. He loves you.